So while the fashion world was looking at it thinking, wow, it's so creative and, you know, it's poetry, you know, there was our hidden message. Hi, I'm Kavala Broy and this is Design This Way. On today's episode, I have with me Shubankar Ray. And this episode has been recorded at Curious Design Yatra 2018 in Goa. Shubankar Ray is one of the most sought-after creative directors and a thought leader in the world of branding. He has developed and mastered a counter-intuitive approach to reframing and developing modern brands in the 21st century. He started his career as a scientist but left the lab early to reinvent and transform some of the world's top fashion and lifestyle brands including Levi's, Caterpillar, Camper, Sony and G-Star Raw. On today's episode, Shubankar shares with us the story behind how he got into the world of branding. He shares his experience of creating a cultural universe around a brand and about designing for fans instead of consumers. He also talks about the influence of punk attitude and DIY culture on his life and career. Today's episode has been designed this way. Now, without further ado, I present Shubankar Ray. Bunker, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So, you were born in Kolkata. I'm born in Kolkata. You studied chemistry. I studied chemistry. And you are in fashion world. Correct. How do you reconcile that? Well, uh, you know, I was born into a very traditional Bengali family in Kolkata. And my father was the uh, eldest son. Hmm. And he um, moved to England. Ah. I moved to England with my mother. I was born in India, then moved to England with my mother when I was about two and a half years old. Oh. And then grew up in uh, England in the 70s. And like all, you know, good Indian sons, <laughs> where the parents want you to either be um, a doctor, an yeah. engineer, or yeah. a scientist, <laughs> and nothing else counts. Yeah. So this is sort of genetically programmed, I think. Mm -hmm. from what I gather and I went off to um, do chemistry at Manchester University yeah um, you know I picked my university on the basis of where my favorite music came from ah. so I had been I'd been grown in the north of England which is quite a tough sort of place quite a racist place and and actually quite a tough sort of uh, childhood ah. and I was um, you know like ag again the, you know to follow the Indian cliche uh -huh. like all good Indian boys uh -huh. you know I was playing cricket from <laughs> you know the age of three so I became quite good at cricket and uh -huh. uh, was going to sort of school of excellence for cricket in the summer Desmond Haynes who opened the batting for the West Indies as my coach and you know Manchester University also had quite a good cricket team Right. In university cricket. Right. 
So uh, I picked Manchester on the basis of this, went off to do chemistry, and there was a very important influential um, nightclub in Manchester, which was like a centre for underground culture. Yeah, and I heard you worked as a busboy out there. That's right, yeah. So first I was going to the club, all my favourite music was coming from there. I was a big fan of Joy Division and New oh, Order. Oh, I love Joy Division. Yeah, so I was sort of super into Joy Division, New Order, A Certain Ratio, The Smiths, right. and all that music coming out of Manchester. Uh, so New Order owned the nightclub. Mm -hmm. So in a way it was like an iconic nightclub. So as an 18-year-old, you know, I was going to the nightclub. Eventually, I started working on and off in the nightclub as a busboy, working in the kitchen, washing some dishes, collecting some plates. To fund your college tuition? Not, re not really. Well, I, I, you know, we, take, we take, take jobs while we're at university. I also worked in a clothing store that was selling secondhand 501s. Mm -hmm. And I was just involved in that culture of sort of music, fashion, um, art, design. So I was just sort of in that world right. at night. Right. And during the day in a chemistry lab. <laughs> so I was in the lab at, during the day with a lab coat. And then at night, I'd be in the nightclub. And actually, you know, in, in, in the Hacienda, that was just like an inspirational experience. Because each time that I, I would go, it would be like going to church. Ah, you know, so I would right. get a very, very spiritual sort of high. Right. From going because you know you were just exposed to sort of new music, the first hip hop coming out of America you heard in that club. Right. New Order were you know I'd seen New Order many times in the club, and you were surrounded by all of this. So as a young eighteen-year-old, you're just watching. Right. And the thing that I had come out of before I went to university, and the music that was prevalent when I was growing up was punk. So punk was a very DIY attitude. Right. So, it was, so everything about punk was you could make it yourself. You know, I grew up making fanzines. So while I was working in the club, I was also um, writing music reviews for a uh -huh. local newspaper. Uh -huh. So that meant that I could get to gigs free. That meant that I could talk to musicians. Right. So a lot of the musicians that I liked, I would interview for the paper. And, you know, it just took me into that world. So I was in a double life. I was in a laboratory doing chemistry by day and then at night I was in this crazy sort of, you know, music, culture, art, design world wow. when it was all underground. Right. So that means it was only for alternative people. So right. you would only know if you knew and it yeah. wasn't for the mainstream. Right. So we were exposed to a lot. So Madonna's first gig, for example, in the UK right. was in the Hacienda. Wow. And and she wasn't the headline act. She was supporting a band called A Certain Ratio. Oh, it was before she became famous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. And, yeah. And that club sort of attracted this. Ah. And many of the people in the club became people. So the fact it was that Happy Mondays were going to that club. And right. then they had their first gig. So I saw the first gig of Happy Mondays. I saw one at some of the first gigs of Stone Roses. Because they were all going, everybody went to that club. Right. And everybody wanted to be signed by New Order. So all the busboys wanted to be in bands and uh. wanted their bands to be signed. And I was sort of messing around with DJing because I liked music. Uh-huh. But within a, within a year of going to the club, I realized that my skill wasn't DJing. <laughs> so, so, so I realized that very quickly. Yeah. And... 
I think that was a period in my life when a lot of influences were going in. Right. And I was a, you know, I was a sort of straight boy who was into clothes. So I was into dressing well, right. clothes, right. sneakers, right. jeans, denim. So I was into that culture right. of sort of streetwear right. before streetwear was really a term. Right. Right. So, and it was just primarily to, you know, to sort of, you know, it's primarily to look good. Right, right. You know, right. and this is the kind of thing when you're 18, you know, and, yeah. and probably, you know, subconsciously some of it is, you know, sort of to meet and talk to girls and stuff like this. So that club was good for all that. Right. So I had a lot of experiences in that club, right. which later in my life, probably so, I realized as significant experiences. So what's the time that you actually took fashion as a, as a serious thing? Oh, that's much later. That's ah. much later. When I was in the club, I was just interested in it and just liked good clothes. <laughs> but I liked music more than I liked fashion. Ah. Much more. Okay. You know, I was, I, uh, and actually I was, uh, you know, one, when I graduated, uh -huh. I wanted to work in the music business. Okay. So I had applied for, you know, sort of jobs at record companies. Right. And got rejection letters or no reply so at the so then because i had a good chemistry degree right i went off uh, took a job as a scientist oh yeah and i took a job as a scientist in a in a research institute that was mm -hmm. bankrolled and funded by nestle who at the time were the biggest food company in the world right right so right. it was a very private research institute doing advanced research on um cocoa beans so that's what i was doing so you and were researching on cocoa beans at that cocoa time? Cocoa beans, plantations in Indonesia, Brazil, this kind of thing. And I would be doing and, and, you know, running a lot of the experiments. And my boss would always go to Brazil and Indonesia to get the samples. Right. So by the time I'd done this for 18 months, I became very disillusioned with science because I thought, this is so f up because I'm doing all the work. I'm not feeling it that much right but it would be nice if i'd got the trip to go to indonesia uh -huh. or to go to brazil uh -huh. or to go to west africa right but i didn't so then i decided that i wanted to leave and quit then they said to me well you know you're a bright graduate this kind of thing why don't you go and do an mba so then i thought i didn't even know what an mba was <laughs> then i thought well it's not bad i'll go and do an mba that means that I'll only work three days a week in the lab and I'll have two days a week when I'm going to either INSEAD in Paris or Manchester Business School or Warwick Business School. So right. they're pretty good schools to sort of attend. Wow. And I would meet lots of people. Right. So I was doing the MBA and then in the middle of the MBA, I got seconded mm. to um, work in the marketing department of Nestle. So I was working with two of the biggest ad agencies in the UK at the time, ah. J. Walter Thompson and Ogilvy and Mather. <laughs> so basically then started working as a very junior person on commercials for chocolate bars, mm -hmm. for Kit Kat, Aero, these kinds of very, very mainstream commercials. Right, right. And I learned a lot and I thought it was fun. You know, I thought it was fun. I liked it. And part of me thought that in a way I'd come from the world of science, mm -hmm. which is very intellectually rigorous. Right. And yet I was sort of in a world that did not seem so intellectually rigorous. Mm -hmm. So I thought that, well, with the brain 
I mean, maybe it doesn't matter that I haven't had the background of some of these guys right. who are much more senior than me. Right, right, and maybe, right. you know, a good brain can give you a turbo boost. That means it gives you advantage. I was a young kid who'd, who'd sort of grown up through street culture, right. through hip hop, through underground culture. Right. You know, I'd grown up through that and right. I'd grown up through punk. Right. So I had a different attitude. I had a different, you know. Way to look at the world. I had a different way to look at the world, but more than that, I had an attitude. So I thought, you know, you know, in a way that it, it's a kind of, of sort of, you know, arrogance or confidence mm -hmm. that you have as a young person <laughs> because you have naivety. Right. Half the confidence comes from the fact that you don't know shit. <laughs> so, so in a way that were, they were, that allowed me to sort of see that world. And I was working quite happily in that world, and it was it was good, you know. I'd I'd, I'd sort of been seconded away from science, was understanding a new world, was slowly understanding about the world of advertising, was learning what brands were. Right. Nestle were a company that was a brand making machine. Right, right, right. Nestle has like it's a it's a portfolio of about hundred plus brands. Right. It's like they have still like making new brands. Yeah, all the time, all, all the time. The time. Yeah. So it was like a really interesting and creative environment. And while I was in the, you know, while I was working as a busboy, I was also doing music reviews. So I was writing. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I was taking photographs. Ah. So in a way, I was a scientist who was always on the borderline between science and art. Right. So the things I was interested in and I'd liked. Right. And the science is really that Indian parental pressure right. pushing you into <laughs> medicine, science, or yeah. you know, engineering. Right. So actually, there's, it's a difference between you're trapped between two worlds. Right. I was trapped between being an Indian immigrant uh -huh. in the UK. Right. So inside my house was India uh, and Kolkata uh -huh. and a, a traditional Bengali family. Outside my house was the UK and England. So it was the clash of these things. So then you don't feel part of any of it. Mm -hmm. So you're a little bit, you've fallen into the gap. Right. You're not minding the gap. You're <laughs> in the gap. Right. And then later, as I grew older, became a teenager, you know, I had a similar kind of thing. The stuff that I loved, which was music, street culture, design, right. art, photography. Right. Against what I was doing because I thought I should do it for my parents. <laughs> so there's what you do and what right. you love. Right. And again, you fall in a gap. Right. So, I'd, so this was happening to me all the time. Well, a job came up at Levi's. Uh -huh. I thought I'd never get the job. Uh -huh. Okay. I thought uh, other people I knew uh -huh. in the ad agency and in Nestle who were much more senior than me, right. sort of, they were talking about, you know, applying for this job. Right. So then I thought to myself, because Should I was I just young, do it? naive, <laughs> I thought to myself, I'm not going to make a CV uh -huh. and I'm going to make an ad for myself. Ah, so your your job application was an ad? My job application was an ad. So I basically sort of cut out a photo of myself um, with a scalpel, made a kind of strange Monty Python-esque collage where I'd cut text and type styles that I liked out of a newspaper and out of magazines. Wow. I'd made a funny little collage uh -huh. about individualism and the uh -huh. culture of individualism. Right. And you know, how some people don't want to be sheep. Right, 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 right. So when the sheep are going in one direction, some people like to go in the other direction. 
because I'd always fallen in the gap, so it seemed natural to me. Right, right, right. So I sent this, not thinking that, not thinking that I would get the job. But you finally got it. I finally got it, and I was due to go to India with my parents, uh-huh. and sort of skipped out of the trip to go to India right. because I'd got this job with Levi's. So then I started in Levi's at a time when you know Nike had not opened any stores in Europe. Right. Levi's were the biggest thing in terms of that fashion world. Right. So they were just big. Right. And what kind of role did you have out there? I joined the sort of creative development team uh-huh. in Europe, and then my remit was to look after brand image. Right. In the UK. Okay. All the ads happened to be made in the UK by BBH. Ah, okay. So they were the big famous ads that were award winning. Right. So I was dropped into that team. Okay. So that's a lucky break. Wow, that that's a that lucky is break. a very lucky yeah. break. And to to be honest, it also comes from your experience that you had and the kind of application you made it. They might have been convinced that this is exactly what. Well, I think they do. were more convinced because I'd worked in the hacienda and I knew the hacienda, and ah. everybody knew that this club was just the coolest club in Europe. Damn. So basically, they they were interested in this, mm-hmm. and also I think. The fact was that I was like the audience because I was young enough right. to be in their target audience of 16 to 24. So in a way, it's a risk that a big company is always going to take because right. you know it's good to have the consumer right. inside your business. Right. And I had never gone to work or gone anywhere in a suit particularly. <laughs> I'd always worn jeans. Ah. So in a way, I, as a scientist, you wear jeans under the lab coat, you know. Right. So right, right. basically, started you know, working on Levi's brand image right. was then was within three months I was in America. So I was just, I'd never been to America. So I was just, you know, it was like a dream going to America because all the stuff I'd grown up with as a kid, yeah. you know, all America, the culture created all by. the culture and we grew up on American television mm-hmm. and it was like, you know, very seductive. So basically I was arriving in New York and it was just mad as a, as a 22 year old, 23 year old boy. And basically had a fantastic time in New York as you do when you're 23 because you don't (laughs) sleep you just go out I was doing shoots surrounded by models you know nothing was bad about it so I thought oh my god this is fantastic you vibed with it yeah it's fantastic so I was just sort of wired and excited every day and it's a great feeling when you're young to sort of wake up in the morning and be super excited about your job about going to work yeah Yeah. about a job so basically, that, cre- that created a lot of enthusiasm and it feeds each other. Right. So the fact is, you, you're in America, you're doing a shoot in New York, mm-hmm. you know, sort of. And then within two years, I was sort of uh, art directing Levi's print campaigns mm-hmm. by myself. So it was my responsibility mm-hmm. with the agency producing it in, in New York. And I was directing every seasonal shoot. Right. So the shoots for all the other stuff. I was going to Arizona, San Francisco, and they're American brands. So we were right. shooting everything. Right. And after that, you have worked with a lot of different brands. Yeah, yeah. And well, Levi's established uh, some kind of, uh, you know, I knew what happened. Mm-hmm. So I learned a lot. Right. And I could do it myself. Right. So I could use sort of, you know, I could use cameras. Right. That was in the days when, you know, I'd made an ad that I'd sort of, Designed myself like a fanzine, right? And the fact was, was that I had ended, I was ending up sort of photographing stuff right. 
cutting stuff out, cutting out contact sheets after processing the film, right. and then laying out stuff, literally cutting it out with a, with, with a scalpel, yeah. sticking it down with magic tape, working out layouts <laughs> like this, finding type styles in record sleeves that I liked, oh. and, then, and then sort of, you know, ripping off bits of type styles. That's pretty much like... Re record sleeves. I'd grown up with uh, punk rock, so I knew how to steal from places, you right, see. Right, right, right. So, in a, uh, so I was sort of doing this. So in a way, that was giving me a, a type of on-the-job training right. where I was practically making it myself. Right. So I was learning how to do everything. And I was surrounded at Levi's by high production values, big budgets. So I was working with fantastic up-and-coming photographers who became, again, it's that the kid that you keep seeing every day who's mm. going to be the biggest rock star. Right, right. And then right, one day you right. bump into him and he's the biggest rock star. Similarly, is the kid who's starting in photography who's going to be the biggest fashion photographer in the world. Right. And you, you're sort of working with them at the beginning and then bumping into them later when they're super established. <laughs> and that was a fantastic, fantastic period. Right. So I learned a lot. And, you know, my work was getting kind of quite good. So I, you know, sort of after about five years of doing this, I was approached to reinvent the image for Caterpillar. Right. And so I thought the chance of doing it for myself and mm. by myself would be mm. quite interesting. So the first thing I did was decided not to do it with an agency, mm. fired all the agencies, <laughs> built, a, built a studio inside, inside, the in, inside the company, mm. sort of made myself the creative director, ah. and then sort of was directing their campaigns right. and literally... And was, they were very radical campaigns. Yeah, they were radical campaigns because they didn't have any money to hire the models, so they had the opposite of Levi's. Ah. So basically, I didn't have the money to hire models, this kind of thing. So I went into the worst neighborhoods in America mm -hmm. in order to cast from the street ah. because I knew that was really what youth culture was. <laughs> I would sort of, you know, it would be very, very sort of reality-based, social reality-based, on-location production. Right, right. We would hire big Winnebago. We would photograph everything. I picked the largest format cameras, so negatives that were 8x10, 5x4, because I knew that they were more complicated, more expensive, and more difficult to operate. Mm -hmm. So I thought nobody else is going to use it. Everybody's going to go for an easy option that's right. fast. Right. So I'll go for the hard option that's right. difficult and expensive. So I yeah. thought that I would pick that, and then that would differentiate my work a little bit. Uh -huh. I thought that I would take all the models from the street. That would differentiate my work a little bit. I thought that I would find all the locations myself and find ordinary f up locations that were a bit dystopian. Right. But in major American cities. Right. So you had a recognizability that this is New York or you had a recognizability that this is L.A. Or you had a recognizability that this is San Francisco. So you had a little clue as to some things that were familiar. Yeah, but yet it's like the location that people don't know. Yeah, and, and it, was, it was a kind of, it was a reality. So I showed reality back to the audience. Caterpillar wanted to fire me after the first campaign. They didn't have any other choice but to run that campaign because they were too late. So they would have missed the season. Mm -hmm. So then that um, resulted in their businesses going up by 50% and 150%. Wow. So then... After that, they still wanted to fire me, but they felt ethically it wasn't right to fire me because I'd been successful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they thought that I was, you know, they thought that I was smart, but they didn't particularly like me. So then, uh, 
then I, you know, sort of, they, I, I had to pitch against big American ad agencies. Mm -hmm. And I was really, uh, I'd, I'd built a sort of internal studio mm -hmm. and built a system around and a team around myself mm -hmm. that, would, that was sort of renegade. Ah, uh, right? so your army. Yeah. And then I started working with some of the photographers that I had worked with at Levi's who had sort of gone from young upcoming right. to, to getting super established and super respected. Right, right. So right. I knew these guys. And so you had a chemistry with them? I had a chemistry with them, yeah. Yeah. I had a chemistry with them. And I understood a little bit intuitively how, you know, chemical reaction works. Mm -hmm. So I understood this from a mixture of being in the nightclub, a mixture of sort of, you know, girl-boy interaction when you're young, yeah. a mixture of how, you know, you end up in scenes and groups of people and bonding occurs. Mm -hmm. So I knew all this and I was obviously doing all this in a test tube. So basically right. I, I knew that it was elemental. So right. I knew that it was fundamental to life, right. you know, right. so I knew it was something primitive and basic. So at the end, right. that all helps. And then then once the campaign started winning awards, mm -hmm. I had Oliver Toscani, mm -hmm. who made the Benetton campaigns at the time that were award-winning and powerful. Right. He um, faxed me and wow. invited me for pasta at Luciano Benetton's villa. So then I went there to Fabrica, which was an important school at that time right. for creativity. Still is. So Olivero invited me there and he really liked the work because he woke up one day, walked mm. through Milan and saw a huge billboard of a 60-year-old plus black guy who was an American worker dressed mm -hmm. only, in, only in his work clothes and caterpillar boots, right. but a beautiful portrait that looked like Richard Avedon had shot it, <laughs> but he hadn't shot it. My friend Stefan Ruiz had shot it <laughs> on a big format camera. Right, right, right? right. So the negative and, right. the, and the, the focus is it's pin sharp because right. the negative is this big. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. so people would see all these billboards pop up and they just, just didn't understand where this campaign came from. And it had presence. Yeah, for Caterpillar. So then I started winning awards for this. Uh -huh. And then at that point, you see people started asking, who is this guy? And what, <laughs> yeah. what, 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 what's going on here? Right. And I still had that punk rock attitude. So I was quite anti-ad agency at the time. Right. I was quite anti the establishment. Right, right, So I right. felt like I was subverting a mm. good American brand into the reality of the street. Right. So this just kept getting massive amounts of recognition. Right, right, right. And then I got approached by the owner of uh, Camper because he loved the campaign. He thought Caterpillar was like a brand that had been somehow, somebody had given it an uh, adrenaline injection <laughs> and completely sort of reinvented it. Mm -hmm. And so he then said to me, if I gave you Camper, what would you do? Uh, so I wrote so that. that was a new challenge that yeah. they put in front of you that what if you so he didn't give me the brief you see ah he liked what I'd written down for him so I'd written down uh, you know uh, I want to make you know I'm interested in rural reality mm -hmm. is the opposite of what I come from because mm -hmm. I'm in the city right I think that all of these things can be you know sort of joined up in a kind of storytelling about right. the Mediterranean I think I can do it super cheap Right. because I've got really good experience from working in the street. Right, so right. I can cast everybody for the next five years from the street. <laughs> and I can, I can cast old people and farmers and all the things that are, that are not glamorous, not sexy, not fashionable. But you bring it to fashion. But I can bring it to fashion because I can yeah. make the ordinary look extraordinary. Because ah. when people thought, saw the Caterpillar stuff, 
the yeah. toughness of it and the roughness of it, there was a kind of strange beauty to it. Right. Because the quality of the photography was so high, because right. I had very high understanding of production values. Right, 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 right. So it would get noticed. And then I realized that, you know, in most advertising briefs, because I'd been in BBH and O&M and J. Walter Thompson, so I knew what, uh, what's written in the brief. And what used to always amaze me was that every brief was always the same. It was always to make memorable advertising. Yeah, that's uh, that's right. funny. Yeah, Everybody writes happens. the same brief. Right. So I, in a way, I was too, you know, my IQ was in a different place where I just couldn't accept that. <laughs> so I just couldn't accept that yeah, shit. Yeah. So then I sort of, uh, you know, sort of started thinking that, you see, that's where, you know, they're all wrong, these briefs, because nobody gives a shit. And <laughs> the kids don't give a shit. Uh -huh. And, you know, it's all so, you know, the wrong way around. So I set myself a mental and kind of philosophical target of making work that was unforgettable. Yeah, you had that intention that yeah, you wanted to because, put in that Because brand. what I wanted to do was, mm. was make things that could last a long time. Right. So I wanted to make things that were in a way unforgettable mm. rather than memorable. So I didn't think I was good enough to make memorable. So I went for unforgettable. And I thought that you know, I'd come from an understanding of fashion that was street fashion. Right. So it was all functional. So the thing with street fashion is that you're not taking designer labels. Right. You're taking sportswear right. and, and recontextualizing right. it. Like, like, you're taking jeanswear. Right. So these are all cheap products made by technicians. There's no designer. Right. Or there wasn't in the origin of it. Right. Like, like what you did with G-Star, that uh, denim, it's, uh, like, denim is not considered a high, high luxury. luxury in the no. fashion world. Yeah. But you just turned that around. Yeah, because I wanted to take denim. Right. To, because I thought it would be an interesting challenge right. to take denim to high luxury. Why yeah. not? Yeah. And then that, you know, that would then filter down right down to the product design. Right. So then the collections... So we would come back with, well, can you um, mix denim with silk, mix denim with wool, mix denim with leather, mix denim with all the highest quality fabrics in the world. Right. And can you go to New York Fashion Week, completely hijack it and make the most, <laughs> you know, charged brand. That must be scary when you were even thinking or were you too excited to think about it being a risk? Because in a way I'd already sort of got to an ambition point, no? Yeah. I'd already achieved. You have proven your point. And I'd already achieved it. So I was just happy that mm. I'd achieved it. So I was a kid who was, well, you know, a young man who was very excited that I'd, all, I'd already arrived in that point. <laughs> I never thought that I would arrive in that point. So yeah. I was just super surprised that I'd arrived in that point. Right. And that gives you a lot of energy because it, mm. uh, so you don't think so much. A lot of creative confidence as well. Yeah. And yeah. to be honest, like a uh, uh, fashion world itself is, it runs on creative confidence. Yeah. Well, I was anti the fashion world, you see. So I yeah. didn't really like designer labels. I wasn't into any of that stuff. Okay. So yeah. I was like a reaction against that stuff. So mm. I thought, how could you make sort of people that you found on the street look super beautiful? Right. How could you make, you know, sort of girls that I'd cast on the street and they were fantastically beautiful, yet they weren't models. Mm -hmm. Then I started thinking about, you know, that it would be good to have more narrative about these people. So what they did, right. you know, farmer, artist, right. student, you know, because you've got a backstory. Right. Then with the G-Style stuff, the owner wanted to go, you, you know, he liked this idea of going luxury. So he liked this idea of going luxury, super modernist, using 
modernist architecture as reference points for clothing, going three-dimensional, so adding tailoring to what is a factory process of cut and sewn jeans. Uh -huh. So he liked all these contradictory points. And, I'd, and the owner of Camper, he loved all, every time, he loved this idea of contradiction. Mm. You know, when Nike says run, we say walk. When Nike says air, we say earth. <laughs> when Nike says run, go fast, performance, we say slow. When Nike says win, we right. say play. Right. So we had this, we had this counterintuitive way of making a brand. The owner of G-Star liked this. He just thought was, he was very complimentary about it. And then he gave me a fantastic opportunity to, you know, make his brand. And, and he hadn't done any advertising. Right. And he, he played with it, but not really done it, not really spent the money on it. Right. And then, uh, you know, s told me that, you know, I want to have a really globally serious campaign. I want high production values. I want to go celebrity. And, you know, we were, uh, because we'd gone luxury and high, mm -hmm. there was a kind of, uh, you know, there was a rock and roll charge to us. Right, right. And you pretty much redefined uh, what the DNA of that brand was. Yeah, yeah. I was lucky enough to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. He let me do it. Mm. So we were able to do, you know, collaborations that were the strangest collaborations. So instead... Yeah, the poet. In, yeah, we did poetry, poetry in the middle of the fashion show from 1920s. <laughs> and I was very specific. So I'd, it wasn't any poem. Right. It was that poem by Rudyard Kipling. Okay. Right, yeah. because it was good life advice. Uh -huh. And it was a war poem. Right. And we were going into sort of the age of war on terror. So I thought it'd be really funny to do it in America. And I could hide it. So I could hide the subversion. So while the fashion world was looking at it thinking, wow, it's so creative and wow, right. what, you know, it's poetry. Right. You know, there was other hidden message. Yeah. I like to hide things underneath. Because what I like the most is making work that is unforgettable right. so people find it difficult to forget you know <laughs> it, it burns something in your mind right and then as you look more and more and more you get a big slap in the face <laughs> because you discover something right that's more so that's why with g-star we were you know doing collaborations to make furniture so we would pick the best furniture the companies that we admired right so right. we think you know we would think leica is a fantastic industrial design company making the best cameras in the world. You know and you what? made a case for that. Uh, yeah, well, we made the camera. So we redesigned the camera. So but the whole thing was about, can we put our design DNA into somebody else's product? So okay. it was like, so I was thinking, so I had this concept about two brands having sex with each other. Right. Right. And then what would happen if that, ha if that was the case? So then I presented it like this to Leica. <laughs> yeah, and then instead of just putting the logo on the camera, we were able to design an intervention into the camera. So ah. that means on the physical Leica digital yeah. camera, we were able to use sort of leather that we were using for belts, strapping systems that we were using for functional outwear, outerwear jackets, right. sort of non-slip grips that we were using sort of for padding on clothing. Right. So we were able to add all that to the camera and make it make the so it looked like a G-Style camera. And then we did the same with the furniture. So we went to Vitra uh -huh. and we were fans of Prouvé's furniture. Uh -huh. Jean Prouvé's, uh, you, you know, yeah. sort of eminent French um, designer. Right. And he's passed away. 
So mm -hmm. we thought it's better to do a collaboration with a dead designer that we admire and we can bring back his furniture. Most of it, what we like and what if we had the money we'd collect, mm -hmm. but we can't afford because we don't have the money. We could maybe get Vitra to reissue it and we'll redesign it. So we'll re redesign something, a piece from 1940 that's a collector's item and we'll make it for, you know, the 2000s. So that means we're going to ergonomically change it right. because people have got a bit bigger. We make it a bit longer. We put a little bit more functional materials in it. We change the colors a little bit, you know, we, so we tune it. So we had a, we had a concept of crossover right. that was to do with, that was a little bit like pimp my ride on MTV. <laughs> so we would take other people's yeah. brands and pimp them. No, so that's an interesting thing. There is a spirit that you carry, which yeah. can be in anybody. Correct. The brand itself. Correct, correct. So what ends up happening is that when you do enough stuff like this, hmm. you build a cultural universe around the brand, which becomes yes. much more powerful than advertising. Yes. So it becomes a superpower. So then everybody comes to you. So we had Jay-Z wearing our product. We had Justin Bieber wearing our product. The cool people in the company would say, let's not have Justin Bieber wearing our product. And I <laughs> For would obvious say, reasons. Yeah, but I would say no. I would say it's much better. Mm. I would say no, it's much better. You know, the best is Justin Bieber, Jay-Z coexisting together. This is the <laughs> best. This is the <laughs> best. <laughs> so Liv Tyler uh -huh. with, the, with the, you know, world number one chess player, the youngest grandmaster at the age of 13, who's only 19 years old. Wow. So we'd mix that together. So, so we would have this plus minus way that's like, of rolling. That's like you were playing with the brand each day. Well, we were roll because I knew that most brands people didn't believe. I knew that most advertising is produced for a lot of money and people don't believe. I knew that most fashion advertising, everybody knows that the celebrity is bought. Right. So I wanted to do the opposite of this. I wanted to make it more authentic and more surprising right. and more clashing. And ultimately, I knew that for a brand like G-Star to compete with a brand like Levi's, mm -hmm. which is, which is, you know, 10 times as big, right. with, 10 with 20 times as much money to spend, right, right. I knew, well, how are you going to win? The only way you can win is if you can build a cultural universe around it, right. you're attracting in a lot of other stuff. Right, so right. people are coming to you. So we would collaborate with many, many different people. Skrillex. We collaborated with Skrillex and then said to Skrillex, we're not going to put you in the ad. <laughs> so we want you to make the music and we're going to put a skeleton dog in the ad. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Skeleton dog. So, so we, want to make, we want you to make jeans, which I know that you don't do, but we can help you. So mm -hmm. we want you to make your own jeans. Right. Because he was an authentic fan. He used to wear the product. Oh, so that everybody makes a who, lot of sense. Everybody who came to us hmm. was authentic. That's why it works. Skrillex would, Sonny would wear the product. Mm -hmm. We'd see pictures of him. Right. And then I'd say to one of my assistants, you know, we've got we to gotta, we gotta send a pair of jeans to Skrillex <laughs> and then open a conversation with him. Right. He thought he was going to be photographed by Anton Corbine and everybody likes to be photographed <laughs> by Anton Corbine. And what we said was, uh, well, we're not going to photograph you. Yeah, okay, we're going to yeah. make a skeleton dog. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then he did the music for it. Yeah. So like the kind of work you have done, I mean, there's a lot that can be found online. And uh, just because we have less time for this podcast for yeah. now. That's right. Let, let's just hear your final thoughts about the future of branding. I think, I think the future of branding has already changed because I think the media landscape has changed. Hmm. And I think the structure of how things are made have changed. Right. So I think, for example, 
I'd I'd been quite in my career. I'd been quite you know I'd not really been part of the advertising industry or world. You know I'd always been an outsider. Right. And I think one of the things I've learned and seen is that the big ad agencies mm-hmm. that had a monopoly before they're f-ed and they're not going to survive because I think that Facebook and Google are the two biggest ad agencies in the world. That's true. That's so true. every client is going to go to Facebook and Google, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. So that's what's happened. So they're dead. What's the antidote to that? Well, there is no antidote really. They're often, you know, lo- often the world turns like the world turns, mm. and and <clears throat> part of it is how you move and surf all of those waves in ah. the world. You see, and you've got to be able to surf it right. and and deal with the changes. Mm. And I think, you know, one of the futures of branding is is about sort of you know the context for your brand mm-hmm. very very important because if you can design the context and design the situation first mm-hmm. then when your content arrives right it has chance to connect right, right and it has chance to have relevancy right also i think that if you do enough things mm-hmm. so you make enough signals you build a cultural universe around your brand ecosystem ecosystem then it becomes much more you know powerful because the most powerful brands in the world you see they people care about their values right. and they care about their values more than their the product that they sell nike care more about the values and what nike stands for and what the culture around nike is than the right. products that they sell so that means that if you can build a cultural universe around the brand Mm-hmm. This can have an enormous power, and for small brands, this is essential. And I had worked on a lot of small brands. This is essential because it because it allows you to play right. in the bigger game of branding. Right. When right. you've got less money, less right. tools, less scope. That. And and you've got to hijack stuff. So I think the future of branding is about sort of you know situation hijacks. <laughs> so you've got to work out how am I going to hijack the situation. Right. And it's a little bit like sort of you know, is a little bit like treating the audience not as a consumer, but as a fan. As a participant. No, as a fan. As a fan. Yeah, yeah. as a fan. And then later, you can have dialogue with the fan. And right. then later, you can open participation to the fan. <laughs> yeah. And then later, you've got the fans designing your product. Ah. And later, you got, you see what I mean? Right. So that means the fans start building right. on top of your cultural universe. Right. So you have an even bigger cultural universe. Right, right, right. And you treat people, you know, and the thing about fans versus consumers is that the fan is treated with respect. Right. The consumer is treated less with respect. Ad agency treats the consumer like a commodity. So, yeah. So, so if they're for fans? Se- selling a commodity to the audience that you think is a commodity, I don't think that's the smartest way to roll in the 21st century. Because it's disrespectful. And I think that, you see, people appreciate being respected. Shivankar, thanks for being on the podcast. That's all right. Pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you find conversations like this valuable and want to help me bring you more content like this, there are many ways you can support this podcast. You can leave a review on the platform you're listening to this podcast on. 
You can tell a friend about it or you can also share this podcast on social media. You can also extend a financial support. To know more about that, visit designthisway.com. Please know that I really appreciate your support and uh, if you have any comments, feedback, suggestion, feel free to get in touch with me on social media or email. You can get my email and social media links uh, on my website www.kaval.co. In my next episode, I have another interesting guest for you. So, see you soon.